0: The ads all look the same. If we're all looking and feeling the same way, it's hard to get any kind of different message across. That's a real problem. What's more important is knowing when to pull what levers and when to use what tools and when some of the old tricks still work, there's still times. Knowing who your customer is and knowing what they want and having them say at the end of it, Steve, that's what I wanted. That's it, that's the whole trick. It doesn't have to be as complicated as we make it. It's like reinventing the wheel every single freaking time.
1: Hi, I'm Michelle, an entrepreneur and creative business coach.
2: Hi, I'm Steve and I'm a social media and digital content strategist.
1: We're friends with a shared passion for creativity in all its forms.
2: Through this podcast, you'll find ideas to help up your game and share experiences with a community of creatives who understand what it's like to work and create in a digital world.
1: If the episode you're about to hear sparks something inside you, share your voice by connecting with us on social media, at pod4creatives on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
2: This is another episode of Conversations with Creatives. We've been doing a few of these uh, this year, it's kind of set it as a goal for ourselves to, to do a few more. And uh, this one is, is definitely one of our favorites. Um, if you remember a couple episodes back, we talked with Keith Steckler uh, in the course of the episode. Keith referenced Adam Pierno and we were able to connect with Adam and he agreed to come on. And um, yeah, this was this was a fun episode to record.
1: It was really fun. I'll give you just his official background. Adam is currently the AVP of Marketing Strategy at ASU, Arizona State University. And as Steve mentioned, he's also the author of two books, Underthink It and Specific. And you guys are, you're gonna love listening to this. He's also a really cool guy and a great speaker. We hope you enjoy it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background anything that you want to share with us
0: i started in the very very traditional world of advertising i worked at an agency called hill holiday that was started in boston and was a creative came up as an art director then met my wife after uh, moving to new york at j walter thompson where i worked there and when we got married we moved out to arizona which is The opposite of the very, very traditional world of advertising, just in general, just the shape of agencies here is so different. Um, Eventually, after being a CD here for a while, um, worked in-house at Verizon and did some other things, but realized that what I really liked was solving strategy problems for clients, that that's what I really fell in love with uh, more than the creative part, which just continued to frustrate and confound me, the subjectivity of all of it. and realizing like i'm probably not the best because i don't ultimately i don't really care as much as other people around me about the the creative expression i just realized i don't really care that much if the client wants to change a font like i don't want to die and i could see the passion on my team that they it was really really important to them and i i knew why but after doing this for I don't know how many years I had been doing it, 14 or 15 years, I just realized like I don't I don't think I care about that stuff as much. I think I'm more interested in understanding the mechanics behind what we're trying to solve from a business or a people perspective. So I switched gears and I got into the strategy side of the business, and uh, that was in 13, 14. And so, yeah, it's been it's been my passion ever since. Yeah. So I've been doing that. So I did uh, I spun up a uh, division at an agency here in town called Santee, which just was recently acquired. Um, and I've been at Arizona State University doing it uh, since December. And it's been amazing because it's really my role here is pure play strategy. It is just diving in and learning about our constituents, our audiences and figuring out how to help uh solve problems for the units here in the school and the the brand overall so it's really an amazing challenge
1: cool so this is really relevant because our previous episode that we have coming out tonight is we're calling it career crossroads yes steve is going through a bit of a possible career transition right now i would love to hear about how you made that switch i mean it's cool that you knew that you didn't care about this stuff anymore and you wanted to go in this other direction. Did you just start applying for new types of jobs or like, how did that come about?
0: That is a great question. And I got extremely lucky. So it is, there are a lot of people in the world who have a job and they go, I don't, I'm not passionate about this job. I don't care. I wish I could go do X or Y, but they don't, they, they don't have the opportunity to go do it. So It can be a very different thing. You know, like I am a uh, copywriter and I want to do welding, right? And that's a totally different track. You have to figure out how to jump from one to the other. Um, I was really lucky because um, the agency that I worked at in Phoenix called Santee, when I was the CD, they didn't have planning or strategy. They had a media department and they had account service, obviously. uh, And the three heads of those groups worked as the planning team. And so I got exposed, I had access to all the tools that we had, Strata and Simmons and everything they subscribed to. I had access to all that stuff. So I kind of got trained that way. I moved to Atlanta during the downturn and when I was coming back, it was the same owner, Dan Santi, who was like, hey, you're welcome to come back here if you want to move back, you come back to the agency, but I have a CD. And so I kind of stepped in it. You know, I was kind of like, well, I'll write down my job description of what I want to do. And you write down the job description that you think you need at the agency right now because they were growing again like crazy. And it was the same job. He needed strategy help and he had put together this great young team, but nobody had like really hardcore strategy experience. And I had been doing strategy through um, different agency jobs since really the beginning just because I was so interested in it. And uh, so I got extremely lucky and uh, had a great you know mentor and great training in that way, but never proper training, mm-hmm. which, which kind of is part of the part of the story as well.
1: Awesome. Well, I'm really glad that worked out for you. Cause it sounds like you seem like you're really happy in where you've landed <laughs> now and that, yeah. and that you made that transition.
0: I still, I mean, here at ASU, we have a hundred, the, the unit that I'm in is a hundred people. And I would say, I don't know, roughly half of those people are creative people. So there's I don't know. There's a bunch of designers and I see how passionate they get about stuff like fonts and type. And, and I'm like, I can't, I remember caring that much, but I cannot make myself get that upset or, or excited about kerning. And although, you know, sometimes I see it and I'm like, Oh, that drives me nuts.
1: I'm kind of in a place right now where I still do graphic design, but I do so many other things as well. And I feel like because those passions have I don't want to say replaced my graphic design passion, but they exist in addition to it now. I feel like I've had to let go of some of those things, and just I don't don't have the energy to care as much about that kind of that kind of stuff anymore. And I have graphic designer friends who I I watch their Instagram stories, and I'm seeing them go through all these like revisions and like hand drawing logos, and I'm like. That just seems like, I'm. I'm obviously have moved into the right space because that just seems like a huge headache to me. I'm like, Oh, like, <laughs> why would you spend so much time doing that? But they're, yeah. they're the best of the best. So
0: I didn't have, you know, for a lot of, uh, art directors and designers, maybe it's more intuitive for them. I think I had to work hard to get to the solutions of what will, what will this customer like, what will this audience want? You know, what's the right type to communicate this. And, and, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's related to that. It's like, Oh, I don't have to worry about that. Like I can towards the end of my run, I could get there so fast because I was learning about, uh, customer psychology and audiences and, um, what drives them, what motivates them, what's, what's the emotion they're feeling and what's the mode they're in. And then it was like, Oh, right. Because that's the part I'm interested in. And I actually, the, the expression of it is like, I don't, I'm just not, I'm not the best at it. There's going to be someone who's better at it than I am.
2: Why do you think that's overlooked by uh, by some brands or companies Uh, instead of concentrating on the audience's needs and what they're responding to and what they're looking for from the brand? Why do you think they focus in so much on on the minutia of the project? People that are
0: passionate about the expression can sometimes become students of the platforms and not students of the brand or the audience. And so it's a it's an equation. It's, it's the brand is going to be one thing and that has to be constant or essentially constant what it's saying. The audience is not constant. The audience is changing, but roughly you're figuring out, Oh, they usually are interested at these key times. And then there's the platform. And if you have the way most brands and most agencies treat social, the people that are working down into those content that fills those massive pipes of Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter, are usually students of the platform, so they understand how the platform works, they understand what it looks like, what it feels like, they know what brands are cool there, they know what brands are are making interesting stuff there. And what happens a lot of the time is, the brands will all end up defaulting and melting into that single look and feel of like, when I, when I think of Instagram, when you said Instagram stories a few seconds ago, Michelle, I was like, oh, I know exactly what that story looked like because, <laughs> because they all look the same, right? And like if I say Pinterest, you get a picture of your mind of like, oh, I know what that content's going to look like. And that's a real shame versus if I say an outdoor board, you don't think, oh, I know what that looks like. You know roughly that it's a horizontal 2D thing, but you, you don't have any idea of what the concept looks like. But I know I know when it's an Instagram piece of social content for a brand, like I could picture what kind of font it's going to have scribbled over it and some kind of swirly script. It's like, I know what it's going to look like today. And, and if we would had a time machine, we knew what it was going to look like in 2014. And trends will dictate instead of it being like, oh, this is by Starbucks and so it feels like Starbucks. Or this is by, you know, Abvi Pharmaceuticals, so it feels like that. It's like It all shouldn't feel the
2: same, that's for sure. So what do you think the danger is of putting the tactic over the content.
0: Well, if, to that, to that end, if everything coming out of that screen looks the same, it's really hard to differentiate your brand and to tell a different story. So even if the, the message is drastically different, if it's communicated in the same way, it all gets blended. And now I, I would argue it's to the point I I stopped using Instagram. Um, but when I was just scrolling it, I could tell what was an ad so quickly. And I mean, it's almost every third post, but yeah. the ads all look, the same Mm. whether it's for a discount watchmaker or the newest brand of travel trousers or whatever they're trying to sell me or a a major global brand it's like they all really look very similar and i know someone's going to be listening to this going well not this one (laughs) there are exceptions right there are exceptions and people some people take better pictures of their pets than other people as well but but there's a lot of commonality as well so if if we're all looking and feeling the same
2: way it's hard to get any kind of different message across that's a real problem You talk a lot about the why, understanding why things uh, occur, you know, why we why we love certain pieces of content, uh, why we watch movies. I'm wondering if that whole thought process leads into this question about what was it that led you to realizing that some marketers were doing it all wrong?
0: I am in the category of marketers that are doing it wrong. Sometimes we uh, we all are. So it's not like um, Gary Vee, like you're an idiot and you're all doing it wrong, like i'm the only one who gets it that's not the point of, of specific or how i think i realize marketers are doing it wrong because i did it for more than 20 years and starting in the really really traditional world where you would have a new campaign kicked off so we would do spread print 30 second tv maybe a cinema ad like you had this preset toolkit right and that those were great times. I love designing spread print. Maybe that's why I didn't want to be an art director anymore because I was doing banner ads instead, right? It's just less sexy. It's less fun. It's less glamorous. The photo shoots are a lot better for spread print, I promise. (laughs) Uh, But when 15, 18, 20 years later, when you still had people at brands and people at conferences and people that you worked with still saying those methods are still the way to do it from media, from psychology, from uh, creative. It's like, no, 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 no. And so it's hard to learn the, some of those lessons that I learned. And like I was at Hill Holiday when they introduced planning. And th- that was an amazing tool for me and probably part of why I'm so interested in planning and strategy. But the lessons I learned then don't all apply today. We didn't even have social media in 1998, 1999 when they had, I'm trying to remember what year it was, maybe 2000 when they introduced planning there. So they didn't have YouTube. I mean, yeah. YouTube could not have even been conceptualized. There was still RealPlayer that was just throwing error messages up on your screen every time you turn on your browser. <laughs> that was just like, RealPlayer, Real RealPlayer can't sync. <laughs> Do you guys, are you guys old enough to know what RealPlayer yeah. is? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, you both look very young. Oh, um,
2: it's early, give us time.
0: <laughs> definitely not preachy. you're doing it wrong, but we've learned a lot. What's more important is knowing when to pull what levers, and when to use what tools and when some of the old tricks still work, there's still times. And so what I started doing was paying attention to media marketing does it one way. Marketing has like one set of tools here that we use for selling CPGs and multi-unit restaurants and and these product cars. Jesus are the worst. The same (laughs) set of products, right? We have these, this is the way we're going to do that. But then music, and memes and you mentioned movies like romantic comedies they work a totally different way and they crush it like going back thank you gary b for giving us that (laughs) free like romantic comedies are awesome because it's the same movie every year since the graduate (laughs) like it does it hasn't changed same formula and like my favorite thing is let me let me predict i can both i'm looking at you guys i'm going to predict by looking in your eyes what your favorite romantic comedy is ready oh Okay, but I'm going to do it backwards. Okay. Instead of telling you the title, I'm going to describe the movie. Okay? (laughs) Ready? They meet. Are you both rom-com fans?
2: If my wife has it on, sure. (laughs)
0: Steve's (laughs) got a Harry Met Sally tattoo on his head. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, If you're not watching the video, you're missing it. It's a killer tattoo. (laughs) Nice work. Thank you. Um, you. So the, the couple meets, they don't get along. They're opposites, in fact. Right? They don't belong together. But then something happens. They're thrown together and they have to figure out a conversation or and you know what I'm you know the scene I'm Yeah, that's about?
1: this is the one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and then they realize oh maybe there's something there, and then they're at the very act three they're getting pulled apart. You probably remember this, and one of them is about to get married or commit to some other thing that takes them away, but then they get together at the very end. Cue top forty song credits and then an emotional thumbtack on the end that's like a scene of the dog that they both liked like peeing on them or something at the wedding like <laughs> did I nail it yeah it's
2: every it's that's every your... t- it's every TBS Saturday afternoon right there
0: dude yes I yeah. mean if you put Jlo or Jennifer Aniston or Reese Witherspoon in it it's the same yeah. movie and yeah. do you know why it's always the same movie because dependably it makes the same amount of money that they need it to make because people know what they're gonna get. The audience that wants to see it knows like, oh, all right, that's what I want. That's exactly the thing I want to see. And you have critics of film that go, well, it's not a good movie, but it's exactly the thing that that audience who will buy tickets for this cost will give us back our ROI on the investment we made in making the damn movie. But marketing really doesn't work the same way when we don't follow the same set of like, oh, this dependable formula will work. It's a little weird.
2: Yeah, but see, that's brilliant because you explain it that way. And I take it. I don't know, Michelle, if you if you thought about it this way, but I go, oh, my God, I've been I've been I've been had all these years and I don't like that. And now I don't want to go see another <laughs> rom-com. But the reality is, is that even if people are being had, I'm not sure they really care if that's what they want. That's what they,
0: they want. They don't care. And, and I don't I'm not condescending about romantic comedies or or like superhero movies are the same deal. It's a formula every single time. And my son, when he sees a new one, we just saw Shazam and he's like. Oh, there's a new one. His, his meter is he's eight and he goes, well, it's not too violent. Like I don't want to see Deadpool. That looks rough, but anything else that's, if he can't detect blood or violence, he wants to go see it because he knows what he's going to get. So that that's really an important thing. So for marketers, knowing who your customer is and knowing what they want and having them say at the end of it, Steve, that's what I wanted. Yeah. That's it. That's the whole trick. It doesn't have to be as complicated as we make it. It's like reinventing the wheel every single friggin' time. Yeah. And I say friggin'. this is family show. You got,
1: we, we were clean and then we had, we had Keith on the show. We got our first explicit label. (laughs) So we we threw all that out the window, whatever you want to say, say it. That guy's a wild card.
2: (laughs) So you, you said an industry, you know, in, in terms of film and and, and zeroing in on, on rom-coms, but are there other favorite case studies or success stories of brands out there that you feel take this this specific approach to marketing?
0: Yeah, um, there's, a, there's a lot of brands that are doing it right. So again, I don't have that opinion that everybody's doing it wrong and I'm the only one that has the answers. In fact, being outside an agency, I'm not selling anything. So it's the best. I'm really just telling you, this is what I think. Um, but if I look at, at some brands that are doing it really right that I that I talk about in the book, I mean Peloton is an amazing brand. I know Peloton is doing it right. Here's how I know. The vitriol against Peloton by non Peloton customers is tells me that they've created the box around their brand, that the people who love the idea totally get it and are bought in and ride the damn bike and watch the thing and have their favorite trainers. And are you guys familiar with Peloton and their model? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if for the listeners, it's a, it's a well-built, great stationary bike that has a screen on it and they serve content that is uh, high-end training videos that you can watch and compete with other Peloton riders. But what I see on Twitter and this, what I've just started noticing, Twitter's the only platform and Reddit are the only platforms I still use. What I see is people bashing who is a Peloton rider and it's kind of become a little mini meme of like what a, what a pompous jerk they must be, or what an arrogant, or like, what, what did you just get out of your own jet plane and ride your Peloton? Like, exactly. Like you, you're helping Peloton when you're communicating that because they have really differentiated themselves. And when it, the product itself is a very easy product to knock off. It's a stationary bike, which already exists with a screen, which already exists and is cheaper every 10 seconds to make. Right. Mm. The videos could be pulled right from YouTube. It's not complicated. In fact, you could jerry-rig it yourself with with stuff you probably already have in your own house if you have a bike. But the way that they've built the brand and the process they have for coming to your house and setting the bike up, is that necessary? No. Are you shitting me? No, that's not necessary. But it adds to this experience that you're being initiated into this club and it's making it feel more special. And then you get in and you, you go through the selection process to help you figure out who's your best training options and what videos you'll like. And then the competitive factor, like they have the psyche of their customer down and it is working really, really well so much that they're alienating customers. That is specific. People who don't like rom-coms don't like rom-coms and they, they won't until they fall in love and meet that special someone.
2: <laughs> and they no, get the tattoo on their back.
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. They, you might never like rom-coms. You just may never be in your psyche. And you may never want to be the person who rides a Peloton. Like when I was uh, in college, I remember there was guys at a party and they were, they were dividing people up visually. They were like people watching and they were saying, Oh no, no, that's a Nike guy. That's an Adidas guy. That's a Nike guy. They were dividing everybody down Nike and Adidas. That's all we had then. We didn't have Under Armour then. And I remember thinking like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, how are they? How are they? I wasn't really I was half in the conversation, so I was more listening. I was an Adidas guy, by the way. And uh, (laughs) I remember being like, yeah, well, I remember (laughs) being kind of flattered. I remember being like, yeah, that's cool. I'm an Adidas guy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why why I thought one way or the other, but I did have a feeling about it, which which I remember it was 20 something years ago and I still remember it. So I think Peloton is doing the same thing just with less keg beer. But they are doing the same idea that, hey, you're in and you, we're okay that you're not in. You know, they know who their customer is and they're designing everything they're doing so clearly for that person that everybody who's not in the, in the circle is pointing their fingers and shaming them. And Peloton's laughing all the way to the bank. I mean, they're building a really strong brand.
1: It's kind of the, uh, it's the Seth Godin thing that he always says about people like us do things like this. I love that. Like that, That stuck with me so much.
0: That guy, so many smart things and he's amazing. He doesn't need more praise, I don't think. But, um, so many of the things that he says that he just spits out as secondary, like he didn't even really think about it. You're like, Oh my God, that's like a, a truth. Um, but yeah, people like us do things like this and, and we're, Oh, the, the difference with a brand and a company is a brand is okay. If there are people who feel excluded. A brand like peloton is fine if you don't want to ride their bike because and they are going to commit all the way and when you work with if you're if you're in the agency side and you're frustrated with your client it is almost always tied back to this route that they want to be all inclusive and not rule anybody out and you know you can't sell jaguars to everybody not everybody can can afford a freaking jaguar it's like i can't that's okay it shouldn't it shouldn't be this well, I shouldn't say it shouldn't be shameful because shame is probably something they're working towards, towards that cusp group to try to get them to feel aspirational towards buying one. Same with Peloton. But it shouldn't be, the brand shouldn't feel embarrassed about saying we are for this group and we are not for this group. And and a lot of what I do, a lot of what I work on with brands, and this is part of underthink it, is knowing what you're not. Knowing what you're not may be more useful than knowing what you are, you know? T- saying we're Peloton and we're not for this. If you have a gym membership at a $10 a month gym, you're not going to trade that for a Peloton, right? We're getting people that are at you know the high-end clubs or have personal trainers that are coming to the house and are looking to supplement that with an extra special workout that they can do on their own.
2: So then how do you advise brands or businesses to start thinking this way or implementing this type of an approach?
0: Uh, where do you start? You start with the audience. So you start with... There's really, there's two sides. And I, and I started this, the equation of the brand should be constant and the the members of the audience won't be constant, but the mode should be somewhat constant of like what they're trying to do when they're receptive to the brand. So if you can't nail down what the brand is and be consistent, I, I'm almost at the point and I've, I've been studying this stuff with Peloton, but like if you look at brands, other brands that really do it well, you can tell before their logo shows up. You can tell what's going to be a Nike ad. You can tell what's going to be, unfortunately, I'm so familiar with Spotify um, ads because I don't have the paid version. As soon <laughs> as I hear like the first beat of it, I'm like, Ugh, this is <laughs> going to be a house ad. But it's an audio signature that I that I recognize. The, the brands that are really consistent and really nail it know who they are. That's part one. And then knowing who their audience is and who their audience isn't. And it, it doesn't have to be more complicated than that, but of course it is. Because you want to do the research to really figure out what's the, what's the emotion they feel about the product. What is the when – when can you possibly have their interest? So when is for traditional – going back to Peloton, for traditional um, fitness, exercise, better for you, New Year's is really like, oh, that's the time. But for Peloton, I have a feeling I haven't studied this. I'm just riffing. For Peloton, they don't give a shit about New Year's resolutions. That's not their time to shine. They're, and then they're not trying to get your tax check. Like right now, you'll start seeing all the tax check ads, you know, Mm -hmm. and so that's a different level. That's a different brand. That's a different customer. That's a different audience. That's a different, pretty much everything. Um, So the media would also be dictated by that. So it's really, if you can connect the dots between who you are and going back to rom-coms, you're trying to create that love connection between the brand and the customer and really locking that in. You don't want that customer to go anywhere else. You don't want that customer to get distracted and find another way. And you want to let them know we're for you and not the person behind you. We're, we're for you. So I think that's, that's where you have to start. And, and strategy is about sacrifice. And for a lot of people, we, we tend to say brands. For brands, that's scary. But brands are just made companies that are made up of people. And so it's the people that are sitting at the desk that are scared to make the sacrifice and go to their boss and say, no, no, we're, we're, we're not focusing on this group. We're only focusing on this group and it's a smaller group, but it's going to yield better results. That's kind of a scary thing to say. Like we're only only, only going to focus on 10% of the market. Depending on what you're selling, that's pretty scary.
2: But that's your group.
0: That's your group. That's who we are. Right.
1: Yeah. We're going to shift gears a little bit. I'm like, I'm totally taking advantage of you being on the show because I just, and when I say just, I mean like I started on an outline and thinking about writing a book. So I'd love to hear what led you to writing your first book called Underthink It.
0: Oh, yeah. So that book was I gave you a little bit about my background and how I had not really been formally trained as a planner. Mm -hmm. And uh, what happened was I had my performance review as I don't know if I was chief strategy officer or uh, VP director of strategy or something like that. But I had a strategy team that I had built out and we were we had good revenue. We're like, we're growing and figuring it out. And in my performance view, they're like, well, you haven't, you've done all these nice things. Here's where you're falling short. And it was in, it was in training. You haven't trained up your team. You haven't, your team seems to want more knowledge. They want these things. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, but I, I've never been trained. I don't even know where to start really. And so I did what planners do. And I went home and I made a Google doc and I started making a list. And I, I honestly, I thought, I really thought this, I would Google it and find like a one solution conference or something that I could send or a book. And so I, I was Googling, I was actually went from my review to my vacation. I spent the seven days of my vacation researching and then I was like, Oh shit, I can't find anything. And so I had this Google doc and it had books and it had um, conferences and webinars and websites. And then I started reaching out to planners that I knew, and strategy people around the world. And I said, Hey, where do you send your team to give them like training? And they all every single person when you find it, send it back to me. Wow. And so at the time, this was in I'm trying to remember what year I started that book, but maybe 15 or 16. It didn't exist today. There's a lot of resources for it. And I don't I don't think I think a lot of people figured out this problem at the same time, me included. So but at that time, there was really no one size fits all solution. So I just kept on researching and finding things and putting together this curriculum. And what I was calling a curriculum was really a list is what you might call it. If the finger quotes <laughs> need to make the, put that in. but as I kept adding to it and getting feedback from people, and they would be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. You could organize this this way. And then I realized, oh, you know what? This isn't a curriculum. It's an outline. It's an out, like I can organize it in this way and now I've got eight chapters. And so I just started filling in um, uh, essentially blog posts for the, the introduction for each chapter. And then I was like, Oh my God, I'm halfway done with this book. And really, honestly, that's, that's what happened was just connecting the dots. And, and I own in the book and I own now, I didn't, I didn't write under thinking. It. it just spilled out of me, me connecting all these resources and tools that other people mostly created. Like there's a few things in there that are my takes on them. But a lot of the things in that book are just like, here's what Boston Consulting Group does. Like Use this. This is a really solid piece of information that is free for you to have. But nobody's assembled it in this way. And I think agency strategy community has appreciated it because it is, it is the training that they haven't been able to get their arms around and do. But when you're a young strategy person and you're thrown into a room with a bunch of MBAs at a company, you know, at a, at a client, you are outgunned. It's like you don't even know what language you're speaking. We were joking before about acronyms. But it's the same deal where they're they're talking in these research terms and you have no idea. So underthink it is about, hey, you can, you you need to understand it. You need to know when to use the right tools. You can have a baseline learning of them and be sufficient at ha- being part of the conversation and solving the problems.
1: That's awesome. So do you consider yourself to be an accidental writer?
0: I consider myself to have a big mouth. <laughs> uh, and so I think uh, I... I had writing a book in my mind. And now I've written two. And I've always written like dumb blog posts, I guess, and articles. So I don't maybe accidental. It's more like nobody really wants like my wife and kids are not that interested in talking about advertising and marketing. So this is my outlet for it.
1: Cool. So it's like when you went to write your second book, did you use that same writing process?
0: Yeah, yeah. Same thing. I, I created. Well, Yes, I did, but I blew it up. So I start, it's an outline, you write the chapters, you write the essentially 200 to 500 words in each chapter that that get to what it is, and then keep going back and just adding flesh to each one and trying to connect each chapter to the next one and lay the groundwork for the one following. But uh, for specific, I wrote about, I wrote almost a whole book, and then I blew the whole book up and just was like, I don't really like where this is going. So it turned into a bunch of different little articles and and other stuff that I repurposed some of it, but there's probably, it's a, it's a much longer book. It's almost 50% longer than Underthink it. And, um, a lot of it is from that second wave. There's not very much that was, that was original to the first draft.
1: Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that.
0: Yeah, sure. And the, I mean, I guess the other thing I did with that might be interesting if you're writing a book, I created a panel. Um, where I asked people, hey, who wants to volunteer and help me r- review this book? And so I would share one chapter at a time and I had some great people that that read and gave me hard notes and critiqued it and beat up the arguments I was making one chapter at a time. So um, they didn't all see all the chapters, but they saw each person that went all the way through saw about 80%, 70%. Uh, and when they finished the chapter, they got an invite to the next chapter that they were going to be allowed to see. So... It, it helped because they were neutral and just reading it like a just kind of coming in cold and reading it and giving me hard notes of like, well, this doesn't make sense. Just two paragraphs before you said this and this seems to conflict. Uh, that was really valuable feedback. And a really, I hadn't tried that before. I didn't do that for Underthink It. So um, that was really a good experiment. I don't plan on writing a third book, but if I do, I think I'll do that again.
2: How did you go about selecting the
0: panel? I honestly, I posted on a few social networks and said, who wants to do this? And some people knew my book. I had a questionnaire and I tried to take an equal number of people that knew and didn't know the book um, and knew my, you know, some people knew my writing and were interested in my writing and some people had never heard of me and, but got the thing shared, you know, from LinkedIn or something. So I ended up with about, all told, I would guess about 50 people, um, from, around the world. It was really, it was, it was a lot of fun. My kids were like blown away when I was showing them like, look, this person's in Australia. They're, they're, they're reading the book, but it, the, the different walks of life that I had was really helpful. So there were people that were in strategy that were uh, attacking it. And there were people that were in media. And then there were people that were just like in education and had no, you know, it was like, what is this, what does this mean? You know, whole sec- sections where it was in jargony marketing talk. And I was like, yeah, I better, I better think about how I, you know, who's the audience for this book and do I, do I want to walk away from some of the jargon, but some of it you you can't, you can't divorce from.
2: Right. Um, so this next section is kind of more of a, of a fast paced, quick hitting, um, Uh -uh. kind of a, Kind of a segment, so um, we call it the profile. It just gives our audience a chance to get to know you a little bit better on some things, maybe outside of um, your everyday work. So we'll start uh, with uh, your favorite social platform.
0: Twitter, hands down. It's and really.
2: You,
0: and you walked the away one. from
2: Instagram and Facebook.
0: I did. I left those behind. I didn't okay. get a lot of out of Facebook. And when I started working using Instagram, it was about the filters. It was about um, artfulness. And then it turned into selfies. And a, a friend of mine, my friend Hallie Wright, she showed me, she showed me, she went back through her timeline and she showed me the evolution of it being like these artful images of like what's happening around you to selfies and it, how it how the culture of Instagram changed. And I was like, oh yeah, that's when I, that's when exactly the moment when I left. And she was like, yeah, isn't that crazy? You could just see how the whole platform has been subverted.
2: Michelle and I have this debate all the time because, well, I don't know if we've had it much recently, but when we <laughs> first started working on on the podcast, we would talk a lot about uh, the grid layout and and you know the importance of, you know this this high yeah. appealing, you know, beautiful looking grid. And I, I, I'm not saying that I think about it or that we think about it as much. It's still probably there because you see it and you go, yeah, that actually that looks really nice the way it's laid out. but, I think we become so much more of a feed-based yes. uh, society now that that's all kind of out the window.
0: It's kind of for nerds now, yeah. Nobody goes and looks at the grid. And uh, it, that's funny. That's why I started using Instagram for the second time. I was like, oh, I'll do something cool with the grid. And I was doing this thing where I had um, used gradients. So I started with white, and I, don't know, I was oh. like adding color to each one. And then I was like, oh, this is dumb. This, this is a lot of work. I'm not going to wait until I see a green thing. I'm just going to shoot whatever picture of my dog or whatever it is that I want to put up there. So
2: you see yeah. so many you, you used to see, I don't feel like I've seen it much over the course of the last year, but you used to see so many brands do those like slow reveals. So, you know, it would be an right. image within the over, but like, is that how people want content served up today? So you're almost forced to kind of change that to your point.
0: Again, it, it could be something that you do. Well, I what's the brand that has the big table? that their whole grid is, a, is a, like an overhead shot of a table. It's a food brand. I can't oh, remember what gosh, it gosh, I don't know. Oh, yeah. whole, I, hate, I hate those. <laughs> yeah, well, it's cool in the grid, but in the feed, it's like, well, now I just have this overhead shot of half a bowl of soup and a fork. Like, it doesn't even make sense. What's compelling about that? Yeah. So what do I do? But yes, Twitter is my, is my platform of uh, choice. I just find it very stimulating. Uh, I've, I've made... I don't know if I've made a couple of friends, I guess, and I've made uh, a lot of contacts that I can debate these types of things. Because in my in, if you live in New York, you could pretty much go outside of your office and bump into someone who's in marketing and talk to them or like on the subway. But if you live in Scottsdale, you have to it's hard to bump into someone who who has the same passion for it and has the same perspectives or a or a perspective that's different enough that you can discuss. So Twitter is a great way for me. It's a great resource for me to do that.
2: Yeah, agreed. Um, book that you've read lately that you couldn't put down?
0: I, I'm going to level with you guys. I have not read a book in
2: about a year because... You know <laughs> I feel that's more common, though, than not.
0: I, I, I want to own it because I know I'm supposed to come on and be like, I love reading. I read a lot. But no, you I don't have,
1: have to be that way at all. I and I think Steve appreciates your answer.
0: I have been writing a book and I have been uh, hanging out with my kids and uh, coaching soccer and doing Cub Scouts. And so I, I haven't read a book in about six months. The last one I read, the book I always recommend, which people probably get bored of hearing me talk about, is Decoded by Phil Barden. And that's a book I've actually read twice. Um, I read it before I wrote Underthinking. i I read it in between Underthinking Thinking and Specific. It's just a killer book. You should read it.
2: Yeah, we'll add that to the uh, to the show notes um, when we run this. Um, so, favorite TV show or Netflix series
0: ever all time?
2: Yeah, I mean, sure. Well, we, life, let's go. Probably. Let's go. <laughs> 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 That's gonna be hard to top. Yeah. Um, right, how about currently?
0: Currently, um, I am uh, just started Shits Creek with my wife, and we both were like. Looking for something, you know, scrolling those things and trying to find something that you're going to both like. And she does like rom-coms and I do not care for rom-coms. And uh, finding something that's in that sweet spot of ironic, either comedy or something that's interesting. But we we got it about a minute and a half in and we were both like, oh yeah, we can watch this. How many episodes are there? And we were both like really excited because there's four seasons and we just found it. So that's the show we're we're really into right now.
2: What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night?
0: Uh, Not too much because I wake up really early. (laughs) Uh, uh, What keeps me up at night is not – a lot of times what I'll be thinking about is like, was I thorough enough in whatever I was working on that day? Like, Did I go – dig in to whatever problem I was solving and then what keeps me up is like oh you know what I could do I could go get this piece of research or I could go ask this group go pull this group back together and ask them this question um, so it's always the, that day like what was I what was the problem I was solving did I solve it and was the solution that I came up with thorough and, and based on the data that I really needed that's that's how my brain works is like cycling through that I
1: think that's pretty Common. I feel like I do that a lot as well. (laughs) Um, what do you wish that you were better at?
0: Oh boy. I wish I was better at, um, I'm a pretty good manager from like a workload perspective. I have trouble connecting with people when they want to talk about like personal stuff or like the, a lot of work, a lot of workplace stuff is more, is less about work. It is more about Social things, and I'm getting better at it because my kids and because I've worked at it a lot. But like, I wish I was better at caring and having, connecting to those social things. Like a couple weeks ago, someone said, "Oh, we're gonna change desks. You know, we're gonna move some people around," and I was like, "Okay." And then as I was walking away, I was like, oh, no, no, Adam, this is a big deal because people are really attached to their desks. And when you ask them to move their seat, it's actually a bigger deal than you think it is because you, I don't care. Like, put, I get a paycheck. put me wherever you want. Like, that's good. But I, I have to work on that and remember like, oh, yeah, right. That's important to people. And so if it's important to people, how do I communicate it in a way that makes them feel like I get it and I do it in a way that's not upsetting them, but also being emotionally honest with them that's like we are, it's not a question mark. We have to move these desks or you two are not getting along. How are we going to fix that? So I wish I was a little better at that. Uh,
1: What is the best piece of advice you've received?
0: Oh, the best piece of advice I've ever received. Uh, When I was very young in the business, my, I worked on a team that worked on Dunkin' Donuts at Hill Holiday. And at the time it was like a The brand was different. It was more 30-second comedy spots. They were, like, funny. And so the whole group, the creative group that I was in, was all, like, these really funny, witty, fast-paced guys except for me. Um, I was the least – I was the youngest and the least funny. So these guys were, like, not comedians, but probably each one of them probably could be if they wanted to do that. But just really funny, quick-witted, fast. And so we'd get in these rooms together. It'd be 10 of us. And you'd be competing for – I'd imagine what it's like with a table with a lot of siblings around it. Like you'd be competing for that last meatball. Everybody would be trying to get the laugh. And am I Italian or what? (laughs) And, um, you're in good company. Yeah. Hey. (laughs) And, uh, I would always just be trying to get a joke in at almost at any cost, like just like throwing out whatever came to my mind. And it was really just like, I, I would like attention as well. I am here. I am also good. Right. But I wasn't as good. These were more seasoned professional, uh, creative people. And, This guy, uh, this writer, John Hart, he was like after he was like, hey, hey, wait for your pitch, man. You don't have to always have a joke like you don't always have to have any. And I was like, oh, yeah, that is good. Like he meant it. He was kind of being snarky about it. He wasn't like sit down and I'm going to give you some advice. He was he was kind of just making fun of me. But I took it as like, oh, yeah, that is really good advice. I should just shut up sometimes and let air happen. People like space. And I don't have to fill the space with a you know with a joke every single minute if I just because I want the the spotlight for two seconds.
1: Oh, I think that that's something that all of us could learn from. I give from. that
0: advice. I give that advice to people where, where I'm just like, hey, wait for your pitch. Just there's going to be a time where you can absolutely own that thing, but this is not that moment. So just shh. It's okay. <laughs> that's a tough lesson to learn.
1: Yes. Who is a person who you would want to trade places with for a day?
0: I think I would like to trade places with one of my kids for a day and see what the world is like through their perspective. Because I, when you have kids, you kind of project yourself back to their age. So when I was 10, the world was not half as complicated as for my daughter. So I think it'd be useful and also pretty sweet to go back and be a kid for a day and see what the world is like and have no responsibility, but also get a sense of what school and social circles are like now because half the kids have phones and just everything is so different.
1: That's a great answer. How do you define success? You gotta give like a, like a college um, commencement speech here. <laughs>
0: Uh, let's like let's start with Merriam-Webster. <laughs> yeah. That's how I start all my live talk.
2: I used to work with a superintendent who uh, was a former history teacher for about 25 years, and the business official in the school district and I would take bets on which historical figure he was going to quote in each of his speeches. Yeah. And uh, I made it's a lot a of money. I made a lot of money on Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> <laughs> it's a killer go-to move: the definition
0: or the historical quote. Um, I like when they quote Steve Jobs. That's my that's my favorite thing. How do I define success? I define success individually by each task. And so you got to set goals. And then success is really defined by whether you did that, whether you achieved that goal. Um, and that's not BS. If you don't, like even now, I had this thought just the other day. I was thinking, oh, here's some things I regret. And what I could have done is I could I was thinking, what will I regret in the future? Which is a kind of a weird thought. Nobody ever thinks forward about regretting things. Well, guess what? Like at that point I was like, oh, I could make a plan to not have that regret, right? I would, I would hate it if I saw someone uh, whose kids didn't get along with them as an adult. And I thought, oh man, I would really hate it if that happened. And so I would define success in that case by, did I do the things that I can do that I can control to... To fix that. Um, and to make sure that we have a good relationship. And so I think I define success by like one, did I even set a goal? Sometimes we don't, right? I don't set a goal for just like going and getting donuts. I came back with the donuts, I guess. Mission success. accomplished. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, I define success individually by task or by project or by some things are in, in life are not projects, but I kind of treat everything like a project because it's billable hours are burned into me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Always on retainer. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Look out to the future. Speaking of thinking about the future, um, what predictions do you have for the evolution of marketing? Where do you think things are going?
0: Oh, it's going to get ugly. It's going to get gross. Um, like what I see a lot of things in... Um, there's, there's divergent paths. There is the uh, personalization that is going to be enabled that has already been enabled by technology to that level that is shocking and horrifying and upsetting and creepy. Um, And then there's the other side where it's more useful and helpful. And my prediction is that we will have to have a majority of marketers go down that ugly path and figure out how to backpedal out of it to the helpful path. Uh, you know, There's already writers and thinkers that have been preaching about the helpful and uh, um, uh, Gartner calls it tailored help, which is some elements of personalization with relevant data points that know what I want to accomplish and what I'm working on that they can, that you can message me about to make it meaningful and important and memorable. And then there's the other side and you know, like Jay Bear has been talking about utility for years. But it seems like people, not brands, again, people have to learn their lesson and go down that like, well, we could put in every data point about you into this email and shock and awe you and tell you how much we know about you. And they'll have to suffer the, the, the negative effects of that before they realize like, oh, you know what, actually, I don't want you to have put my social security number in the subject of an email just to prove that, that you know, <laughs> like, eh, maybe I don't want that. Like, don't put my wife's name in, in this uh, banner ad. So I think that that's my my prediction is that we will get to the right place. But I have a feeling we're in for a turbulent couple of years while people try to minority report us into submission for click now, wink twice to buy or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever creepy technology comes out.
1: <laughs> so you think we're going to go like too deep into the personalization and then back at, up to like a more acceptable
0: place? Yeah, because... I don't have a great case record. I don't have a good track record that's visible to me of brands using restraint for the most part. It's like they overinvest, they overdo it, somebody goes crazy. And then when I when when we say brands, we're three marketers, right? When we say brands, we think of this noble class of the top, you know, your Coca-Cola's and your Nikes and your Adidas like the brands that get it. But go scroll your Instagram feed, man. It is 99% those, those travel pants and people that are just like, I will sell things to you. And here's my growth hacking secrets. And that group of marketers will use all these tools and some of them will suffer. Some of them will actually grow doing it, unfortunately, um, and pave a way for more people to try it before they realize "Eh, this is, this is gross. I don't like this. Or business results are dictating that we stop doing it.
1: How about your future? What's next for you? Do you have any big goals or dreams or anything oh, that you still Jesus. want
0: to do? Show with the questions. You I don't know. <laughs> it's, well, it's Tuesday. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Putting I'm so kidding.
2: much pressure on the guy.
0: I know. <laughs> this is a lot. I don't, I don't know. Right now, the book is out, and I'm just not touching a keyboard for a little while. Uh, so that's my, that's my delightful thing. I wish that was true. I'm still, I'm still writing a lot of stuff, but no more books. Uh, My big goals and dreams right now are to uh, do some more speaking and uh, help here at ASU to uh, achieve the goals that we have, which is uh, increased accessibility, making school and education easier for people to get to instead of harder uh, and getting more people in. And then um, just trying to be a force for good out in the world, you know, trying to figure out ways to help. When, uh, when When I put up Notes saying, "Hey, who wants to help me with this book?" I was I was really touched by the response I got. Um, I think what's next for me I, I've been offering to help people, no strings attached. Like if you're working on a project and it's out in the world, or you want to put it out in the world, what can I do to help you short of paying? Like, can I help edit it? Can I read it? Can I share it with someone else? Who can I connect you with? Um, can I? How can I support you to get that to help you get your project to the next level or your idea out there? Um, if it just means giving feedback, that's a really easy thing to do. And if it's just connecting to people, that's an easy thing to do. That doesn't cost me anything. So I think what's, I'm trying to do more of that. And you'd be surprised how hard it is to, for people to let their guard down to like ask for help. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty amazing. So, uh, just trying to figure that part out. But I think probably for the next year, year and a half, I'll just be working hard on trying to get in front of people and helping them with whatever the hell they're, they're trying to do
1: that's awesome that's really cool of you thank you and thank you so much for waking up early for sharing your time and your insights with us and we'll definitely link up to your twitter account where people can find you reach you take you up on this offer to help them with whatever awesome yeah (laughs) and we'll also link to your your books on there as well
0: awesome thank you very much i appreciate it thank
2: you thanks adam it's nice to meet you
0: yeah you too Thank you guys for making time for me today. It was awesome to be here.
2: If you've enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word on social media, tag us at pod for creatives and let us know what stood out to you. All right. Um,
1: but we can use everything up until
2: I'll go back and say it again. We were able to connect with him and really excited that he's okay. All right. And
1: there was something you said I was going to make fun of you for. Now I can't remember what it was. Maybe you'll say it again.
2: Oh boy. <laughs>